we have gathered today uh, is to discuss, I would say, a hot, uh, a pretty hot uh, topic, uh, carbon border uh, adjustment mechanism. Not necessarily tax, but uh, mechanism as the, term, uh, as the term goes. This is not really a, a, new, uh, a new topic, uh, but this is a topic that has gathered a lot of speed and a lot of uh, interest. In a sense, this issue of whether or not uh, countries that introduce some form of carbon taxation, whether in the form of permits or in others, uh, whether they should accompany uh, this uh, policy, this domestic policy, with a external measure, uh, has been there since since the start. Uh, when the ETS system was introduced, there was quite uh, rapidly this question: Well, you know, why are we only issuing this to domestic uh, producers? What's happening about uh, foreign uh, producers? And that debate has existed in other countries uh, that have introduced uh, carbon taxation who have or have considered uh, introducing carbon taxation, like in the US. The US does not have, at the federal level at least, carbon taxation. But that discussion has been there for quite a while. Yes, we should introduce it in, in the US, and yes, uh, we should have uh, a system of that sort. Others have said it would have a lot of problems uh, that would result from the introduction, all kinds of problems that we will uh, discuss uh, today. This is very badly uh, uh, adjusted. I'm, I'm struggling uh, with, uh, with this. So um, we are going to hear uh, a presentation by Georg uh, and then uh, comments by uh, Gabriel. And uh, I should say that uh, the timing, this is really a, a terrible, terrible system. Um, I should say that the, uh, the timing of the event is really uh, perfect, apart from the corona uh, virus. Um, the reason why it's perfect is that yesterday the Commission launched a uh, call for um, views on this subject. Uh, we all know that uh, the reason why this subject has, has taken really salience uh, is because of the European Green Deal and uh, the fact that already uh, last summer uh, Mrs. von der Leyen uh, and then uh, reissued in, in, uh, in December, announced that, yes, the Commission is considering, as part of its European Green Deal uh, plans, to uh, potentially introduce a, uh, a mechanism, a border carbon adjustment uh, mechanism. What he did yesterday is call on uh, stakeholders, um, including think tanks, uh, to uh, provide uh, their views on uh, different options for a carbon adjustment uh, mechanism, and in particular three uh, options for a mechanism have been uh, presented, but they could be uh, others. So uh, there is only one month uh, for this consultation, and uh, so yesterday was the very first day, so uh, I think we are ideally placed here to have that discussion at the launch of this, uh, of this process. Georg, we look forward to your presentation, and then uh, I will turn to, to Gabriel for, for comments, and then uh, I will open the, the floor for discussion. Georg? Um, thanks a lot, Andre. Um, so, can we put on the slides? Um, um, so, uh, Andre perfectly introduced the, uh, the subject. Um, now, 
why would we want to, uh, to have a carbon border tax at that stage? So maybe a short kind of um, framing remark. So we are speaking here of a carbon border tax. Our idea is essentially uh, all sorts of instruments that put a price on, uh, on, uh, on carbon imports from, uh, from other places um, can be largely um, kind of uh, subsumed under, uh, uh, under this wording, but we don't mean other me measures like, uh, like standards or, uh, or other tools that might be subsumed under the idea of a, of a mechanism. So as you can see from the title, uh, I'm trying to, uh, to be relatively provocative and, uh, and line out a bit the case on why I think, and there are different views on, uh, at Bruegel on, uh, on that, that this is not uh, uh, the, the perfect way forward to, uh, to put a lot of emphasis on, uh, on introducing a carbon border tax. Now, why would one want to have a carbon border tax? Essentially two main reasons. One is the fear of carbon leakage. So what is carbon leakage? Carbon leakage is if we reduce emissions here in, uh, in Europe, essentially somebody outside Europe is producing the same goods and exporting them to Europe, and then the emissions happen outside Europe, and potentially even more emissions because you have to, uh, to include additional transportation, and maybe uh, outside of Europe the, uh, the facilities are even less efficient than, than our uh, facilities. And this is essentially the main argument that you are going to, to hear in the, uh, in, the, in the legal text, because that's the basis for, uh, uh, for all WTO compliance, which we are going to, to speak about later. The other argument that is, uh, that is more inward-looking is the question of, uh, of loss of competitiveness. So companies are less caring about uh, carbon emissions. Uh, they are more caring about their competitiveness. So steel producers inside Europe will claim that they are essentially losing competitiveness making less money here, having to, um, having to close down. Um, carbon border taxes, as André said, have not been a new subject uh, in, uh, in member states and in, in Brussels. So we had in 2007 already a, a draft by the Commission, 2009 a French non-paper, 2016 another French non-paper just on cement. So you might ask yourself, why are we discussing that now? And um, I would see, uh, see two main arguments here. The first is with the European Green Deal. Um, the idea is to really increase the targets of the European Union uh, uh, at, an, uh, at a dramatic speed. So what we have in, um, uh, on paper is 50 to 55% reduction of carbon emissions in 2030 compared to 1990. That means from current levels, it's another like almost 40% reduction. So think yourself that if you have 10 cars on the street that are with internal combustion engines, uh, four of them will have to, uh, to be uh, different. And that's for the entire economy. So with these higher targets, the fear of carbon leakage obviously gets stronger because carbon prices might have to increase dramatically to achieve these uh, significantly stepped up target. The other thing is uh, that, the, that the current uh, tools for preventing carbon leakage, uh, the free allowances under the emission trading system, are slowly uh, losing in importance. So over time, uh, we have uh, less uh, uh, allowances put out, and there's also less free allowances given to the industry. Uh, so industry also is looking for new tools to, uh, to prevent against carbon leakage. So, uh, as André said, the Commission has, uh, has put up an idea, uh, um, and uh, the, um, the, the two sticky words here are for, uh, for selected sectors, so probably the Commission will not think about a comprehensive tool, but uh, about a tool for selected sectors and in compliance with WTO rules. And I'll come to what that might mean uh, a bit later.
So what is carbon leakage? Um, maybe a bit kind of zooming out as an, as an economist. Um, there's different types of, uh, of carbon leakage. I would argue you have, uh, you have essentially the, the direct leakage, which is you put, uh, uh, you put on your industry uh, uh, particular regulations and then your industry moves out of Europe because of those regulations. And that's the so-called pollution heaven hypothesis. There's another trend of literature that essentially uh, argues if you put uh, on your industry uh, uh, specific rules, they get more innovative and, uh, and therefore they develop the technologies to, uh, to reduce emissions that might be even taken up outside of Europe. That's the Porter hypothesis processes which goes in the other direction. At the same time you have indirect leakage and that's going to, to become uh, important as well in a minute which is Europe uh, uh, decarbonization strategy will rest a lot on reducing fossil fuel consumption. If you reduce fossil fuel consumption in the European Union essentially global fossil fuel consumption will also be depressed by, by a bit. Then global fossil fuel prices will decrease as a result of a reduction in demand and therefore other parts of the world will start to increase their consumption of fossil fuels because the prices are lower. So you have an indirect leakage uh, of emissions to, to other parts of the world. Same might be for beef or, or, uh, or other carbon intensive uh, products. So the, I mean, the, the whole idea of a carbon border tax essentially rests on the, uh, uh, rests on the claim that there is a significant problem with carbon leakage. And in, uh, in the paper that, uh, that has been published uh, some, some minutes ago, which you can find on the website, we essentially try to, to put together the literature that we could find on, uh, uh, on the evidence for carbon leakage, and our results are more mixed than, than what you might hear in, uh, in the public. So we argue essentially that for existing carbon pricing policies, and we have some in the US, we have uh, some in Europe, and uh, the, um, the evidence of leakage on the aggregate level that there's really kind of uh, large-scale economic activity moving out of Europe because of that, or large-scale emissions moving out of Europe is, is very mixed. Um, and uh, typically, uh, in, in most uh, works, you, you don't find any significant uh, results. And there are three plausible reasons for that. The first reason is, well, we are talking a lot about very capital-intensive industry and it finds it's very difficult to kind of adjust within one, two years and it takes quite, quite a lot of time to, uh, to adjust uh, over, uh, over time, so we don't see the effects quickly. Then, in existing schemes, also the carbon pricing differentials that we, that we had were not very large, so uh, European emission trading prices uh, were in the order of less than 10 euros for, for quite a while per tonne. And then, the, uh, uh, and then the third reason is that a lot of the existing schemes also had compensations uh, to, uh, to carbon-intensive industry in order to prevent exactly that leakage that we are not observing. Um, but we also have no kind of clear evidence for leakage so far, so it's, it's hard to say how, how strong the effect is going to be. On the, on the other hand, we have the, uh, the modeling work, so, so people running uh, big trade models, CGE models as well, um, and they find leakage, on a, 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 a limited leakage on an, on an aggregate level. Um, so overall they find that uh, if Europe reduces uh, emissions by, uh, by 100 tons, then about 5 to 20 tons of uh, additional emissions can be, uh, can be expected outside of Europe to, uh, to, to come 
uh, there. So there is some leakage. But if you then look into the models and, uh, and see uh, uh, what you see is that about half of this leakage is essentially due to the energy price channel. So of this 5 to 20, maybe 2 to, uh, to 10 tons of increase is due to the, uh, to the energy price channel, which you cannot really do something about with a carbon border tax because you cannot really uh, change the, the fact that the uh, uh, energy prices globally are uh, depressed due to a European decarbonization action. <coughs> and furthermore, these models depend strongly on, on underlying assumptions. I mean, they are calibrated based on, uh, on empirical results. And, and here, one of, the, uh, one of the main input variables are so-called Armington elasticities that tell you how strongly is, uh, um, um, domestic consumers favor domestic products over foreign products. And if, this, uh, uh, if there is no strong preference for domestic products, it would mean kind of all the, uh, uh, you would see a lot of leakage. If there is no strong preferences, uh, then uh, 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 if there is very strong preferences for domestic products, then you would not see any leakage at all. Now, if we look in the models, there's typically a point estimate put into the models, and, uh, and that's then the result. If you look into, uh, into the estimation of the uh, elasticities, the, uh, the, the error bands are huge. So, Essentially, what you see coming out of the models is largely based on how you, uh, uh, how you calibrate them, and that's very uncertain. Now, if you look into individual sectors, uh, like uh, uh, what, we, what we call the carbon-intensive and trade-exposed sectors, like uh, aluminium, cement, steel, um, there, the empirical literature tends to find some, some limited leakage. Um, even so, the, uh, the range of estimates varies widely, and the, um, the effect is still not huge. So you have some effect, but it's not like the, the entire industry is going to disappear due to, uh, uh, due to carbon leakage. Um, because many other factors matter for the location of companies. As I said, it's typically highly capital-intensive uh, uh, installations. They, they will be there. They are uh, introduced in, uh, in value chains. Uh, there are transportation costs, non-tariff costs, um, geographic uh, uh, factors, uh, the, the availability of other, um, uh, other factors. So overall, there's a lot of reasons for why a company is sitting in one place, and, uh, and the, the price of carbon will be, will be only one of many elements. Um, there's some empirical uh, work in the, in the US done on the uh, elasticity to energy prices, essentially saying that, yes, if you put a price on, uh, uh, on uh, additional taxes on energy, essentially production will go down domestically, but imports won't increase much. Um, and as we, we are not really uh, able to find kind of a, a, a historic example of how um, uh, how strong emission price differentials translate into, uh, uh, into a dislocation of industry because there aren't strong emission price differentials in the, uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the past. We looked into energy price differentials as a proxy. And the example that we come up with here is in the US, uh, you have very different natural gas prices uh, within one country. In Texas, the, the price of natural gas uh, dropped from about the same level as in, uh, uh, as in California to about half of the level uh, that, we, that we see in uh, California. So therefore, you would expect that, uh, that, uh, that a very natural gas intensive industry like hydrogen production that is essentially um, yeah, using natural gas as its main input would 
very quickly adjust to to go to the place where uh, where natural gas prices are significantly lower. If you see the timeline here of uh, of that, what we what we see is essentially relatively little a little effect in terms of the uh, production uh, volumes of uh, of hydrogen. Can you, can you explain a little bit this chart? Sure. So the the red line is essentially the the price ratio between uh, between the prices in uh, in, in California <laughs> and Texas. So it started at uh, at about parity at zero point nine. Uh, in uh, in 2000 uh, in 2008, the um, uh, the price for natural gas in uh, say Texas and, uh, uh, and and California were were about the same, and in 2018 uh, they were at uh, at about 0.5, which means that the price in uh, in uh, in California was twice as high than in uh, than in Texas. Then the uh, the bars are uh, essentially the the use of natural gas in in hydrogen production, which the uh, the U.S. Uh, uh, reports for for those two areas, and uh, and what you uh, what you essentially see is that the uh, the use of natural gas uh, in uh, in hydrogen production has been relatively uh, uh, moving in the same way between uh, between California and uh, and Texas over this time even so the the price differential between the two areas has been has been massive and probably that's because California is a big market because there are so many reasons why you would want to to have your hydrogen being produced in California and and not in Texas but it shows that it's very unlikely to assume that if we have high carbon price differentials that essentially 100% of our steel industry will will uh, will disappear from from one moment to the next so the argument is that um, even a perfect carbon border tax will only address a relatively limited uh, uh, limited problem. At the aggregate level, uh, we have fairly insignificant uh, leakage rates, um, and around half of those leakage rates might be uh, might be due to indirect leakage, which cannot really be addressed by uh, by carbon border taxes. And then uh, the the leakage that we observe is highly concentrated in a few uh, carbon intensive sectors. Um, a bit uh, from the from the economist ivory tower, you could argue that those sectors are also having relatively low employment and, and relatively low value added. So for the uh, kind of overall value generation in a, uh, in, a, in a continent, they might not be the, the most important ones. And even within these sectors, leakage is uh, is limited, uh, as uh, as I, I tried to show. Now on the uh, uh, on the uh, on the side of the uh, of the. Um, of the much pain, uh, so kind of what what would a, a carbon border tax uh, uh, co uh, cause in terms of uh, of problems? I'm not sure how I'm with timing. Um, you have seven eight minutes. Seven eight minutes. Okay, uh, I think I, I jump slightly forward uh, on <coughs> the uh, uh, to to just go. Uh, through those points, the rest is in the uh, so kind of the detailed uh, work is in the in the paper. Um, so. I would argue um, that if you have to take into account all the difficulties of implementation in, uh, in legal terms uh, of, the, um, uh, of a carbon border tax, so making it essentially WTO compliant, making it UNFCCC compliant, uh, you have to take into account your domestic constraints with having very different countries with very different industries and uh, and, and different interests and your foreign constraints especially the the risk of uh, uh, of retaliation and uh, uh, the risk of not upsetting uh, developing countries you 
most likely end up with a carbon border uh, adjustment mechanism that is far from the, from the economically perfect way of, uh, of doing that. And so the, the effectiveness of the tool will, will most likely be not uh, uh, most likely far from perfect. Um, at the same time, you'll get several trade deviations uh, in, the, uh, in the process. Um, on the one hand, if you, if you introduce, for example, a selected mechanism, because as the, as the Commission uh, uh, is proposing, there, there will be a selected mechanism, uh, you might essentially have to uh, the problem of cascading uh, protectionism. So uh, we have seen, for example, the US implementing a tariff on, uh, on, on steel and aluminum imports in order to protect their, uh, their industry. And the, the result of that has been that indeed the imports of steel and aluminium to the US went down. At the same time, the, uh, the, uh, the domestic production of steel and aluminium in the US did not increase. So what happened is that essentially the US started to import significantly more wires and, uh, and, uh, and pins and nails and other uh, aluminium and steel products. So the, uh, uh, you might end into a problem where you try to protect against the, uh, the leakage in a, in a low-value product and go uh, and essentially see then uh, a leakage in a higher-value product, which is certainly something that, uh, that then other industries will not find amusing in, uh, in Brussels. Um, you might also see other trade deviations. So, uh, um, for example, if you have a complete system of, uh, of carbon border protection where essentially the entire value chain is taken into account, um, you might see trade deviations that essentially the cleanest companies around the world are then selling to, uh, to Europe, uh, which have before sold to their domestic markets. So think of a steel producer in, uh, in Georgia that currently produces for the local market based on, uh, based on hydropower or whatever ex other example you, you want to take. That's then not selling for the uh, Georgian market anymore. That's then going to sell to the European market and not facing a carbon border tax, while then the Georgian market will be supplied by Ukrainian steel, which is very dirty. So in that sense, uh, 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 it's, it's quite difficult to, to, uh, uh, to, uh, to find an effective way that does not produce those trade deviations. Uh, if you want to have a complete value chain recognition in this thing, uh, the cost of implementation will be huge, so you have to track down the entire value chains, and uh, I hope we can have a discussion on, on how, that, um, how that's going to be possible. And also on the, uh, on, the, on the political side, I mean, if you want to do that, you need to, to essentially go out now to speak to all our trade partners. Our foreign of, uh, uh, services will be uh, occupied with that. The, the commission will be occupied with that. So there is a lot of political and, uh, and human cost in introducing that. And finally, and I think that's the, uh, for me the um, most severe argument, I would argue that um, at the end of the day, when we have this thing ready and when we have to decide uh, to implement it, there's a risk of, uh, of possible retaliation. So if we uh, go ahead with that, then our trade partners, and especially the bigger ones like the US, will say, no, we are not going to, uh, to accept that. We think you are trying to push on us uh, your domestic climate agenda. We are not happy about that. And therefore, we are not buying Airbus planes anymore, we are not doing X, and, uh, X, Y, and Z. And then the question is, can a, can a union of 27 member states with very different interests in this thing hold together and essentially stand through such a fight, or is there a big risk that the, <coughs> that the thing will fall apart? Um, my before last slide, um, I would argue um, uh, for an alternative mechanism, and I would argue that under an adjustment mechanism, you can not only uh, understand protective instruments, but you can also understand kind of uh, progressive instruments. 
And the, uh, the adjustment mechanism that, uh, uh, that we are thinking of is essentially supporting low-carbon produ uh, production. So the idea is that, yes, we have our current industry and it's dirty and it's going to, to decline over time. We are not going to invest in dirty anymore because uh, anyway, by 2050, uh, we, we shouldn't have dirty anymore in the system. But we support heavily the introduction of clean. So European uh, policy should take the money from the free allowances, um, take uh, maybe also money from the, from the remaining ETS and put it on supporting low-carbon uh, technology deployment in, uh, in big time so that we are essentially the, the continent that develops green steel, green cement, uh, uh, green aluminium, which as it kind of uh, uh, buys, uh, buys our way down the learning curve, can then later on also be implemented globally. And that's then, again, the, the Porter hypothesis that we are essentially, with our ca uh, carbon regulation, helping globally to, uh, to de uh, decarbonize. Um, so I would, I think I would leave it at that. Um, yeah. No, please. please yeah. uh, no, no, please. Yeah, give your last slide. Uh, I mean, uh, what is... Uh, I mean, the, the conclusion is, uh, uh, is essentially we, we see relatively little gain because uh, the, uh, the, the leakage uh, um, literature to us is not that convincing. And we think we, uh, we should look into what, what's going to happen in reality and uh, potentially adjust. Um, we think it might make sense for the Commission to, uh, to work in parallel on CBT as a, as a deterrent um, to, uh, to make sure that, uh, that, uh, that countries outside Europe see that there, that there is a risk that uh, if they don't move in the right direction, something will come. Um, but we should domestically not count that this thing is going to be implemented. So we should not kind of highlight to our industry, you will get this thing in, uh, in two years, because it might eventually not work. And we need to get this done with, uh, with climate policy. Otherwise, uh, we are in big trouble. And uh, as a as an complementary mechanism, I'm calling for significant support for, for clean alternatives. Thank you. Very clear. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Gear. So, little gain, uh, high cost. Uh, I turn to you. Um, Gabriel, uh, you are a professor of economics at the University of Kiel. You are the president of the uh, uh, World Institute, uh, World Economic uh, mm -hmm. Institute there. You have done a, a lot of work, uh, like uh, Gear. Uh, this is a field. Uh, as I said at the start, uh, that has not waited for the uh, announcement last summer for people to, to research this, because mm -hmm. indeed, this is a real economic uh, question. And uh, I think it, Georg put it very well, there are gains and there are losses. And I think we all agree on the gains and losses. Uh, I think where the discussion is, is what is the relative weight exactly. uh, on the gains and costs? So, what is your take? And that's, uh, on that's this? exactly what we economists should be good at, no? In weighing those trade-offs. So, I, I think I disagree with a, a couple of things that the Georg said. So, first of all, how empirically, empirically relevant is the leakage problem? Uh, if we look back into the experience with the ETS, it's not surprising that we don't find much evidence. Uh, Georg has said why, well, because those prices historically were low most of the time. But what is even more important, I think, in, in the empirical assessment is that while prices have been low, Europe and many European member states have enacted other regulation. 
with the aim of reducing carbon emissions. I mean, think about uh, the car industry and, and the fleet standards and so on. So there has been regulation, and the re regulation might not come with a very specific carbon price, but it still imposes costs on, on the industries. And so if we, rather than look just for the effect of the ETS price, which has been very low for many years, but look at the broader index of, uh, or broader indicator of, uh, of climate policy, then uh, the literature is a little bit, uh, has an easier way to find evidence for leakage. I'm, of course, I have my own uh, shares in this because I've published some of my nicer papers there. And the, uh, the, the message is that we do find limited leakage once we move away from carbon prices to more comprehensive uh, indicators of a climate policy. And the second uh, uh, point that is important, I think, with respect to the ex-post assessment of climate policies is that um, they, they are not very informative about what is going to come. Because if the average ETS price over the last uh, uh, decades has been, or years, has been maybe 10 euros, we're now talking about ETS prices that are three digits. You know, they have to be ramped up dramatically. And we know from all sorts of economic uh, models, intuitions, calculations, that the, uh, that the impact of uh, CO2 prices on leakage or on uh, locational choices will be highly nonlinear. So we cannot simply say, because a price of 10 euros has no effect, a price of 100 euros will have no effect neither. No, that would be a fatal uh, conclusion. But rather, I would say, first of all, we have evidence for leakage. It's small. And we, we know from other exercises that when we double efforts, leakage, uh, the leakage likelihood would not just double, but it would quadruple. And we would need to step out our efforts, not just you know, by some amount, but dramatically, and the leakage will be increasing overproportionately. So we should, I think, know that. And for that reason, I think uh, we need some sort of carbon border mechanism, or we cannot hi have high CO2 prices. I think that's the choice. And that's why, uh, you know, for political economy reasons, I think, we need to have these arguments there, and that's the reason why von der Leyen, Macron, and many others, also I think the U.S. Senate and, and House of Representatives, when they produced their uh, draft bills, they have insisted on this because it's needed to get high prices passed uh, in, in, the, uh, in the laws. The CGE literature also points towards leakage. It's correct that there are a lot of uncertainties, but it's actually not parameter uncertainty. If you dig into this, you know, so I've, again, I have my own, I have my own interests, of course, there that have worked in this. But um, uh, across studies, if you look at the the literature, you know, that comprises now hundreds of papers. If you look, uh, then then you find that there is variance, of course, that depends a lot of different on different assumptions, whether those have, whether you have direct leakage or also indirect leakage or both of it, uh, and many other things. So it's scenario driven. But across those many studies, we do have relatively robust uh, evidence that there is leakage, uh, around 15% or something like that. No? You can say, okay, 15% is not big, but the prices usually put into the CGE model, so that's why I talk about scenarios, are prices that we thought are reasonable in the last 10, 15 years. So there are many studies who have implemented something like 25 euros a ton, maybe 50, but the 100 or 130 that we need are not implemented, and they would drive up leakage rates dramatically. Again, it's in the square, they would increase in the square, and so we should take this serious. 
There's another reason why we should uh, think about carbon uh, border adjustment, and that's the following. The EU uh, has about 10% of global emissions if we look at territorial emissions. So, the, the, you know, the stuff that goes through European chimneys, through the, the bellies of European cows and so on. So it's about 10% of global emissions. But the carbon footprint caused by Europeans, by our consumption, essentially, is about 12% of global emissions. So if we extend the carbon pricing scheme beyond the, the, the pricing of production to the pricing of consumption, and that's essentially what a good designed carbon border adjustment does, then we increase the reach of our own climate policy by 20%, by a fifth. And that increases uh, the effectiveness of this action quite substantially. Now, of course, we are still not talking about a, a large share of global emissions. It's 12% of global emissions, still small, but it's bigger. And it would probably lead to something that the literature calls negative leakage. Right? If we have a CPA, a carbon border adjustment in place, and we, we tax the carbon footprint instead of carbon uh, emissions, then we add incentives abroad to save on emissions because that would make it easier to sell to the European market. We would, in an ideal mechanism, exempt exporters, domestic exporters. There are good reasons to do that. We can discuss that. And that, of course, reduces incentives for our exporters to save on emissions. But because Europe is the world's largest CO2 importer, so CO2 embodied in goods. No? We're the largest CO2 importer in the world, and that means the incentives that we put on others are worth more than the incentives that we lose uh, at home by such a CPA, and uh, that's why the effectiveness and also the efficiency of the, of the system goes up. Why is it better to tax the footprint or to price the footprint instead of uh, production? For a super simple reason that tax experts uh, have been putting forward for many, in many other areas as well, is you'd rather tax the immobile tax base. Carbon consumption is done by us, by consumers, by the Europeans. We don't move around, we don't move to Siberia because gas is cheap and hit our houses there. No, no. so the, the consumption doesn't move around and we tax an immobile, a price immobile base that's much more efficient than uh, pricing a mobile base, and uh, as production is mobile, that's, that's not such a good idea. Now, many of the concerns that Georg put forward are very real concerns, so I, you know, he's totally right. There is an issue of protectionist abuse potentially by Europeans. There is an issue of potential retaliation, and most important for me is that we might create a bureaucratic monster no, I think this is very serious and needs to be taken into account. And that's why I like uh, the following idea. It's, it's an output-based allocation mechanism with a tax. No? Ober cum tax. That's, uh, that's one way to put it. What would that be? So first of all, let's recognize that we already have a carbon border adjustment in Europe, which is, uh, which is the fact that we give free allowances to carbon-intensive and trade-intensive industries. And that, why do we do that? That's to, uh, to help them maintain their competitiveness on international markets. So when the ETS was invented, carbon leakage was addressed by these free allowances. What if we if we'd continue those free allowances and maybe even extend them, you know, give those certificates away for free? That would free production from the carbon price. And instead of uh, putting the carbon price on production, we tax the goods that those industries that receive free uh, allowances produce, 
and tax those goods regardless of whether they originate in Europe or originate abroad. So there would be, let's say, a steel tax, a cement tax, uh, taxes on chemicals that would possibly be proportional to the carbon content of those goods. Uh, you know, we don't need to have all the details. We would see, well, there is an extra tax on steel and so on and so forth for whatever uh, the origin of those uh, goods is, but production would be exempted. Now, one can put up such a scheme and calibrate it, you know, very carefully, you know, and hire a team of economists and calibrate that so that it, you know, reproduces the perfect carbon border adjustment uh, setup that I described before, which, which is like a value-added setup. No? The, the perfect system would be one that is like the value-added uh, scheme where we impose uh, imports to the domestic taxation, and we exempt exports, like with value-added tax, but the tax base is something that we don't really know. No? Uh, it's the carbon content of goods, of imports and of exports. And if we do the Obercum tax model very carefully and choose the taxes correctly and give the, the, the right amounts of free allowances and so on, so if we calibrate that in the right way, we can reproduce the ideal, uh, the ideal carbon border adjustment setup. Now, that's theoretically very attractive. And it's uh, even more attractive because uh, free allowances, which one could call export subsidies under certain conditions, never have been challenged. No? So there is no case before the WTO that says that uh, giving free allowances to the European steel industry is, is, is a subsidy or is a problem. Right? And having taxes uh, that differ across goods is not a WTO a problematic issue neither. So we can have, we have a tax on, on sparkling wine and on schnapps and, and, and on beer and you know uh, so so what? No? So we can have uh, taxes on steel and aluminium and chemical products and so on according to their average carbon contents. And I think that would not be subject to the retaliation fear. It would not be subject so much to the <laughs> to problems with the WTO. And we can go very far in making the system as good as an ideal carbon border adjustment system would be. So how far would we go? Well, that, you know, as an economist, we would, of course, balance, as we always do, marginal benefits and marginal costs. So making this overcome tax system very close to the ideal would be expensive because we would need a lot of information. And so we'd probably not push it that far, but we can go relatively far no? uh, on, uh, and, and keep the, the bureaucratic and red tape in Bay. So I'm, I'm more uh, in favor of, uh, of going about that. And uh, the key motivation, I think, for me is to say we need uh, to, to put this system in place in order to have the high CO2 prices that we need in order to make you know, uh, innovation and so on worthwhile. Um, I think that's the, that's the, uh, the last argument. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Gabriel. So we have uh, Georg's view and uh, Gabriel's view. What I find uh, interesting, unusual for me as, a, as an economist who has participated in, in many uh, debates um, on this issue, is that typically in such debate, you have the environmental uh, economists mm -hmm. who is pushing for this very, very much. Uh, in the name of, you know, climate, and, you know, there's a climate emergency, and, uh, okay, there may be some trade issue that comes, but it's a price worth paying. And then you have the trade economists who are saying, hey, wait a second, 
yes, uh, you know, there is a, a climate uh, emergency, but to look at uh, the world trading system is already in a weak uh, situation. Are you sure that, yes, maybe it's WTO compatible, but nonetheless, there are some countries that would not play along. There would be retaliation nonetheless, uh, and therefore, uh, you are putting at risk the, uh, the trading system. That's usually the kind of thing that, that I hear, sort of trade economists sort of being reluctant and the uh, environmental economists uh, being very much in favor here. Uh, I think this is, I think what is novel in a sense in, 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 in the debate that we are having uh, this afternoon is that we have slightly uh, opposite, uh, opposite, uh, opposite argument. Now, uh, let me just, uh, apart from what I just said, let me just add one point. I'm not going to, I'm not here to be the, uh, the judge and to say I agree or disagree with one or, or, the, uh, or the other. Uh, I think we will leave the, uh, the audience uh, to play that, uh, that, uh, that role and to give their, their comments and their issues of legal uh, matters indeed, WTO, also EU, because I hear, I mean, you know, one, one slips sometimes, um, one talks about the tax, uh, is it a mechanism, I mean, exactly mm -hmm. what it is, how would it be actually implemented, and what are indeed the legal implications, uh, both within the EU and, and uh, at, the, at the international, uh, at the international uh, level. Uh, but I think that uh, I, I want to, uh, to push uh, the both of you uh, uh, a bit further on one dimension. So part of the discussion that we had was in a sense about the evaluation of how much leakage there is. Mm -hmm. Okay, That's one issue. And as, as normal among uh, economists, uh, two economists, uh, three views, uh, that, is, that is normal and one should have the debate and everybody brings their, their own uh, element and uh, I think, again, I will leave the, uh, the audience to, to bring their views or their comments on this. I'm not going to say anything about this, you know. Uh, is there a lot or is there not a lot of leakage? And therefore, is there, yes or no, potentially a need or justification for this? And then one can say, okay, assuming one does, then the consequences, you know. Maybe, yes, maybe there is leakage. Uh, Okay, which you sort of downplay, but yes, maybe there is leakage, but maybe the solution is worse than the problem. That is mm. always obvious because of the other, uh, the other dimensions. Uh, that, is, uh, that is certainly there. Um, the, 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 the first question that I would like to, to put to you before opening to the audience is, is the following. Uh, both of you have recalled this number uh, that is obviously an important number to keep in mind. Uh, the EU uh, is responsible roughly for 10% uh, of emissions in terms of production. Mm -hmm. And as, as you indicated, Gabriel, and that's a very important uh, point, uh, we are responsible for a larger number, 20% more, if we look in terms of consumption, mm -hmm. okay, which I think is indeed the correct uh, way to look at this. But... 20% uh, more than, than 10 is a lot from an EU perspective, but still from a global perspective, 10 or 12 Absolutely. is not uh, hugely, uh, hugely different. So, in other words, I think uh, we are facing a global issue, right? Climate change is not a European problem, it's a problem for, for humanity, mm -hmm. uh, of which we are a part. And therefore, one can agree 
that ultimately what we want, uh, having signed up to the, uh, to the Paris Agreement, we want that the world, we and the world, we can control ourselves what, what we do, right? We can take initiatives, but we know that those initiatives are not enough. I'm not arguing to say, well, you know, since nobody else is doing anything, <coughs> we should not do it. That's not the way I, I'm, I'm taking it, mm. but I'm saying everybody needs mm. to, to move, right? Mm. And all of those who have signed up, so far everybody signed up, the US has not left uh, at the moment the, the Paris Agreement. We want indeed that countries take seriously their commitment, right? And so the way I personally look at the, at the, at the issue of the uh, border carbon adjustment is, you know, what contribution, positive or negative, do we think that this is making to, not just to our own efforts, because indeed we view this as a complement, right? We are saying, no, we are moving to a higher speed. We had sort of low, uh, uh, the emission trading scheme at relatively low prices. No, we want to include more products, and we want to be the, uh, the price equivalent to be uh, much higher. Uh, so, you know, we are committed to make much bigger effort, but we know that our commitment uh, has to be also accompanied by commitment by others. And, and others are taking, obviously, uh, they're not necessarily waiting for, for us. Uh, there are many countries mm. that have equally ambitious sometimes even more ambitious commitment than we have. So the, the one question that I would like to hear from both of you, uh, and you have given a lot of elements, is what is your view? Uh, let's assume uh, that, you know, and you can have each of you your view on leakage. Leakage is low or leakage is high. Okay, you, you're not in agreement about the leakage. Okay, that's, that's an element. Uh, but then after that, uh, what is your view as to uh, whether this will be a contribution? You know, one can say yes, by example, or by uh, a little bit sort of forcing uh, other countries. We are big, and therefore what we do will have, will have an impact on others. We are, you know, you can take either a moral stance, you know, we are showing the way, and, uh, and others will see the light, uh, or you can say uh, we are big, and therefore, what we are doing will force uh, other countries. But that, in, it seems to me, ultimately, that is the way that I personally uh, would judge this uh, initiative. Uh, I understand the political economy. Obviously, the political mm -hmm. economy, that is, are you able to implement a ambitious measure domestically if you don't do that? Mm -hmm. That's yeah. one element, okay? Mm -hmm. That's the political economy mm -hmm. argument, okay? But then... That is still not enough. Okay, no, you have implemented, you have, the, you have solved your political mm -hmm. economy problem. You have told mm -hmm. those guys that, you know, don't worry, <laughs> I have a mechanism mm -hmm. to compensate you, in a sense. Uh, you are not going to suffer, you know, everybody mm -hmm. will be on a, there will be a level playing mm -hmm. field here, okay? Mm -hmm. And you have solved a, a big hurdle, a domestic hurdle, okay? So, no, yes, Europe is implementing an ambitious uh, a set of measures, mm -hmm. domestic and external. But we still know this is not enough mm -hmm. because we are 10 or 12% of the global emissions. So the real question, what's happening on the, on the other 90, 88 or 90%? So that's where I want to take you. What is it each of you think uh, would happen? Uh, would it contribute? Why it would, would contribute? Or why do you think in the end, no, it will harm this meeting together, the uh, goal of the Paris Agreement? 
Georg, I start with you. Um, excellent question. I'm because that's kind of the, the essence of how we uh, how we are able to globally decarbonize or not. So are we going to to get the uh, the eighty eight percent in line with us? Because we have to remind ourselves that. Paris Agreement is about full decarbonization uh, by the uh, second half of the century. And so everybody has to move. Um, my argument would be that kind of with a sort of protectionist or uh, policy that can be viewed as protectionist uh, in the political setting, it will be very difficult in negotiations with developing countries. They will point to the UNFCCC and say, it's about differentiated responsibility. Why, uh, why are you kind of uh, wanting from us that we do the same thing as you are doing and uh, and might not like to uh, to see that and uh, also kind of countries that are very proud of their uh, of their superpower uh, status might be very worried about us trying to uh, to to push them to do something that they are not uh, um, kind of domestically ready to do and only the, uh, the the point of being pushed is for them a problem, uh, um, not so much the the matter on its uh, on its own. I think we we had this blog post on aviation at some uh, uh, in the, in the past, and one of the uh, one of the big sticking points in in my view at the time was that it was about sovereignty that countries don't want to be pushed around from uh, uh, from other countries to uh, uh, to implement things. My take is that we have an example from the from the past that uh, that worked extremely well. Uh, we had in, uh, in Europe uh, introduced uh, support systems for renewables and they were extremely costly and you can discuss a lot about how well they were designed. They were not well designed and we can do much better. But they had one effect that essentially the cost of solar panels decreased by about 90% uh, uh, or more than 90%. And at the same time, the cost of wind also decreased uh, substantially, uh, uh, maybe 80% or so. Over, uh, over 10, 15 years. And when this was achieved, essentially we uh, came together in Paris and other countries outside of, uh, 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 of the European Union were willing to sign this agreement because they saw an opportunity to, uh, to, to meet essentially higher targets because there was then this technology available. So you could argue that uh, the German and Danish ratepayers to some degree also bought the Paris Agreement by developing the technology that, uh, that enabled others to, uh, to pursue a, green, uh, a greener path. Now the question is, can we do that with other sectors as well? And I would argue, yes, we, we, uh, we can do that. And essentially, it's the, it's the only sensible policy because that's something where Europe is strong at. We are uh, rich in capital. We have good institutions. Uh, we have good intellectual property rights protection. We have, uh, we have a inno uh, relatively innovative and, uh, and modern industry that is able to develop those technologies. And if we are able to, to have them, then the global rollout becomes possible. And, and therefore, I see the uh, kind of if we have to decide where we put our financial and political capital, I would rather put it on, uh, on that side of the, uh, 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 of the balance sheet than on the other side of the balance sheet. Thank you, Georg. Gabriel? Yeah, André, uh, you're absolutely right. The, the central question is really how we can achieve the first best, which would be a global carbon price. Uh, and, and what we are doing with the carbon board adjustment is uh, you know, to deal with the second best nature of what's going on. Now that only a subset of countries have CO2 prices and then, and then the mechanism is likely to be not second best but third and fourth and fifth best. No? So getting more countries into the system is, is super important, more important than anything else. 
Um, the news, the good news is that it's not just about 88% that's not covered, but you know, I think uh, there are other countries, regions, Canada and so on, that do have CO2 prices, so uh, three quarters of global emissions are covered already or will be covered uh, soon. Uh, we have states in the United States that do have carbon pricing. China is doing it in cities or in regions and might do it nationally. So I think any CBA, any carbon border adjustment system that the EU uh, puts forward needs to be linked to other countries' carbon policies. No, I think so climate policy is super important to achieve that. Uh, and, um, um, you know, I'm, I'm very happy about how the democratic race is going. You know, uh, it might well be that, um, you know, uh, next year already, we might have a very different situation in the White House and uh, maybe a president that is, uh, you know, continuing Obama's carbon pricing ambitions, which were there. And, um, and then uh, uh, we would not talk about 12% uh, of uh, carbon, global carbon emissions, but about some, something much larger if we can do it together with the United States and potentially even include China. Um, on, on technology, so uh, when we when we talk about a carbon border adjustment, we talk about the CO2 price. And economists think, uh, most I think, uh, agreed, to that we need uh, to internalize the the cost of uh, pollution, no? and that means a carbon price. Almost all and in Germany there are uh, some exceptions, but but almost all serious economists would say this cannot be the only tool. We also need uh, to uh, to subsidize. R&D, no? uh, because there are two externalities that are not internalized and we need to do that massively. And um, uh, that has the potential that it uh, achieves more globally than creating a European carbon fortress, no? simply because uh, we need to convince those who own fossil fuels, gas or oil or coal, to keep the stuff in the ground. And the only way to convince them is to provide the world with the technology that produces energy cheaper than burning gas, coal, or oil. No? And that must be the ambition, because that's the only way uh, to, to make sure that you know, the carbon industry goes out of business. Uh, and then indirect leakage, which is the bigger of the issue of the two, uh, gets addressed as well. Now, how to do that no? is, is maybe to use the proceedings more directly from our carbon pricing system. So if carbon prices go to three digits, there will be a lot of money on the table. And the other thing I think we should be doing whenever we, uh, whenever we tax foreign producers in the carbon border adjustment, and across the, uh, you know, uh, at the 25 euros that we are now having as CO2 price, we're talking about something like 20 billion uh, euros of tax receipts or of income in, in Europe. We should not run a carbon border adjustment mechanism to uh, gap the holes that the Brexit uh, brings, but we should give it back. No? We should give back this money to the developing countries uh, or to even the United States, no? or at least put it into a fund and say, you know, this money is used abroad in those, in, you know, uh, in those countries whose exports we tax uh, and is used there to incentivize maybe R&D or something like that. So I think much of it is, is, is a question of design and of diplomatical skill you know, to, to uh, achieve both aims, go ahead in Europe without losing our industrial basis, at the same time convince as many as possible to, uh, to engage in carbon pricing themselves. Thank you. I think you've both uh, very well answered my, uh, my question. Uh, let's open the floor for discussion. 
Uh, do we need a do we need a microphone? It's coming. Okay. If you just wait one second for the microphone, if you don't mind. Thank you, Bertrand de Combergue, Policy Planning Staff of Foreign Ministry of Belgium. Thank you very much for two outstanding um, um, speeches and, and exposés. Um, I do notice that there is an agreement on one point, is that a um, tariff-like uh, border tax uh, would not be practical. I mean, in for both speakers, I think uh, it would be cumbersome, create a bureaucratic monster, or not be efficient. So, and um, my question is the following. Um, how do you ensure with a value-added type of mechanism to introduce a um, non-discriminatory consumption tax on, uh, on um, products that have you know, a high carbon content in the production process? How do you calibrate the tax in order to uh, punish more those that produce with a high level of emission and those that to actually produce with a lower level of emission. Because you're basically going to tax all products the same. Uh, what, whatever, I mean, uh, what do you take into account as production process for it? Uh, and how do you um, relate this to uh, um, the third countries where the production process is very polluting mm. and other countries where it is much less produ mm. polluting? Let's, let's take a few uh, questions. David, are you? David Scheinman from uh, Seis Johns Hopkins. Um, just a comment perhaps on the, on the legal uh, side of things. Um, you know, I, I've sort of frequently been somewhat um, uh, stunned by the fact that uh, uh, people are asking for WTO compatibility and this might be a, a challenge in fact, whereas, uh, you know, sort of a border tax adjustment um, under WTO law is explicitly allowed for under Article 2. Um, you know, then the question is, is it discriminatory vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, foreign producers, national treatment, or whether it is uh, discriminatory among foreign uh, producers, uh, depending on origin, um, they, you know, for MFN. But, uh, but even if that was the case, we can still, um, we can still uh, provide you know, a sort of shelter, legal shelter via the exceptions of Article 20B uh, and Article 20G. Um, the, the one thing mm -hmm. that I think would be would be really uh, problematic uh, seems to be sort of really um, um, you know making this tax or this this adjustment contingent on uh, the policy rather than the carbon footprint of uh, of, of a foreign country. Uh, meaning that uh, under Article 20, uh, it would be hard or, or difficult to justify um, sort of a uh, a policy-based uh, discrimination in the sense of you know is a country. Um, that does a country sign up to the Paris Agreement uh, or not? So this is this is a sort of a line that, uh, that in the sand where one should be uh, particularly careful um, that that shouldn't be crossed. But other than that, uh, WTO compatibility that doesn't seem to be a massive problem. Um, the other um, brief point that I wanted to mention is is really the what perhaps is you know has been discussed much more in Brussels and is much more of a of, a, of an issue is the is the is the question of EU law in terms of unanimity requirements. And that uh, it very much depends on whether uh, we are looking at a tax or a regulation. Um, if we in, uh, sort of introduce a, a carbon tax, obviously we have to go through Article uh, 192.2, uh, which uh, you know sort of requires unanimity for uh, fiscal provisions. Um, uh, hence, uh, you know we have a special leg legislative procedure where the European Parliament is not involved. I'm not sure exactly how much the European Parliament views these kind of. Uh, uh, special legislative procedures these days are largely undemocratic, um, uh, problematic in that respect. 
uh, but sort of you have the uh, democracy problem there and you also have a unanimity problem in the council. Uh, the commission has been advocating um, the, the use of a passerelle clause um, in order to circumvent uh, the problem of, of unanimity where the council would make available um, the OLP um, uh, to um, uh, the adoption of this carbon tax. Uh, much less problematic, if, may, if I may just say very briefly, it would be the extension of the, of the ETS to importers if um, the judgment of the, of the European um, Court of Justice still upholds, whereas, he's, whereas uh, it says that there's, you know, the ETS is not a tax but a regulation. And that is a, mm -hmm. that is a question that, uh, that needs to be looked at in perhaps more detail. But if that was the case, then we can go through, uh, through the OLP and uh, have uh, no unanimity requirement but qualified majority, um, uh, the involvement of the European Parliament. And uh, so, you know, that there, are, there are the challenges of, of EU law, perhaps, that, uh, that one needs to look at, just sort of to complement uh, the, the previous debate. Thanks. So ju just uh, <coughs> to add a point before again going to further question, just on that, it would be good to, um, to recall what was said yesterday in the document issued by the, uh, by the Commission uh, inviting for uh, uh, contributions by, uh, by stakeholders, by, as they say, by citizens and stakeholders uh, in, the, uh, in the coming month. Um, so the views that are being uh, requested concern three options, uh, essentially. One is the one that you just uh, laid out, uh, sort of uh, an extension of the, uh, of the ETU, of the ETS to, uh, to imports. Um, and as you said, this is not a, this is not a tax, okay? But they also, uh, as, as, a, as a second option, uh, there was also a tax, uh, con concretely, uh, use the term, a carbon tax uh, on selected products, uh, both uh, domestically produced and mm -hmm. uh, imported. And then the third one is indeed an import, uh, an import duty, uh, a new carbon customs duty or, or tax on imports. So, in other words, the, the full range uh, of, uh, of instruments requiring obviously different legal basis in, in the Union. But at the moment, the, c the Commission is not excluding anything. Nothing is off, is off the table uh, at the moment, even though, as you just recall, each of those options has different implications for unanimity, for the role of Parliament, etc., uh, etc. Et but you know, so far, they say everything, everything is potentially possible. And the view is that, uh, I mean, we have another year. Uh, the Commission would put forward a proposal by June of, of next year. So the, by June of next year, so the, this is the time frame. Right? So there's going to be mm -hmm. consultation. So now is indeed the time when uh, this whole debate is really starting in, uh, in earnest. Yes, please. Thank you. My name is Eckhard von Unger. I work with the Federation of German Industries here in the Brussels Office on Trade Issues. Um, the sectors that are, I mean, in the debate currently in the context of carbon board adjustment are very capital intensive. The investors look at very long time periods. I would like to ask the uh, two speakers on uh, how their options would, uh, I mean, um, um, 
go in hand in hand with their um, need to have a kind of stability. Uh, um, can they have to calculate prices, uh, but I mean with carbon border adjustment they can vary. Um, and uh, with supporting them, I mean, are there limited limits what what our competition framework can do? Um, so far, I think uh, it was also the case with photovoltaic. There was some some uh, incentives over a certain period of time decreasing. Uh, but if we talk about a very long time horizon uh, to to achieve our targets, so <coughs> is there anything that we have to do in in uh, in your your model uh, of support? Also, in terms of competition policy, do we have to adapt in, in this regard to be able to support uh, these sectors over this long uh, period of time? Thank you. Yes, please. Hello, my name is Paula Tama. I'm a reporter with Politico Europe, and my question will be for Dr. Febemeyer. About taxing products based on their average carbon content, I see two order of potential issues there. If you don't tax production but consumption, don't you lose the very incentive of a tax on carbon, therefore to impulse the processes, industrial processes to decarbonize? And the other issue is you mentioned um, free allowances could be maintained or even enlarged. And so far, with uh, the following the commission and what they say on this issue, is that this is not the way they want to go. Because uh, if you see free allowances and indirect compensation as the policies which so far have addressed risks of carbon leakage, and then on top of that, you add a tax, either whether that's domestic and on imports, that could be considered and challenged as a double form of protection, which is one of the preconditions of the WTO. So these two order of problems. One is the very nature of leaving production alone doesn't undermine the very objective of such a measure. And the second is the legal part, even though maybe there's lawyers. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Yes, so we take those two <coughs> comments. Two comments. Hi, Nicholas Pottier from Bruegel. Uh, my question is basically relating to the very practicality. So the cost of, comp of compliance I, would be huge, I assume, no? because you would have to know if you don't go by this kind of, as is the question before me, just ask if you don't just go by an average price. You have to know every for every single product how what is the carbon content. And for me, it sounds very difficult to implement that, in, in, in especially in developing countries. Uh, we've seen this with the garment industries where there was huge pressure to increase labor, uh, regulations and um, basically the outline of this, I think the outcome was basically zero because most garment, most companies don't know where their garments come from. The supply chains are very, are very long, are very complicated, and for actually to calculate the real carbon content of products should be very difficult. So then we end up with very specific products with the problems that Georg mentioned before that we will have this kind of uh, we will substitute low um, production of low added value added imports to higher value added imports. And a last comment here for this for this round in in the middle. No. Hello, my name is Leon Tipman from the Council of the European Union, and I would like to go back to the question of how we can convince resource-rich countries to um, leave the fossil fuels in the ground. 
And last year, I did some work on a paper by Hase from 2012, who um, proposed to set up um, a compensation scheme where fossil fuel deposit would actually be traded and that um, climate-friendly countries could um, compensate polluting countries um, for not using their fossil fuels. And I would just like to hear your views on this. Gabriel, we start with you. Yeah, okay, thank you. So many questions, excellent questions. Um, and I think uh, at least the first uh, uh, by you uh, on uh, uh, how to take into account the fact that the different companies in different countries produce with different technologies or have different carbon contents uh, of their outputs. This also relates to your question. So ideally, if we had you know, uh, perfect information and we could set up the ideal instrument, we would tax imports at exactly the carbon content that uh, they have. We need to control the entire uh, production chain, of course, but, uh, and we would exempt uh, exports. No? That would shift taxation from production to consumption entirely. The advantage of doing that would, would be getting incentives right. That's, that's exactly this. And um, if, we, if we cannot do that because of uh, legal complications, because it's too complicated, and we move to a different system, then this different system is likely to be much less effective in terms of putting, getting the incentives right, in terms of uh, reducing the leakage problem, so we will be not in the second best, but then in the third and fourth and fifth best world. No? So. I have not yet given up, uh, to be frank, no? uh, and I think we can be ambitious in Europe. Let's for one time, you know, get those problems that are real, you know, on red tape and, 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 and so on, you know, take them as a challenge and try what we can and come up with an innovative system. And there are good ideas around, no? Joe uh, Shapiro in Stanford, for example, has a nice idea of how, you know, to set up a mechanism that uh, incentivizes uh, foreign producers to truthfully reveal the carbon content of their production, right? So there are ideas around. I have uh, a, a, a member of my, my institute of, uh, of, our, uh, of our friends society, you know, a big uh, entrepreneur. He says his clients want to know the carbon footprint of the products that he's selling. And the guy is having a big... Um, a big uh, retail uh, shop, no? and uh, he says he, he wants to be able to tell his consumers whether those sneakers, what's the carbon content of these sneakers compared to those sneakers, right? So there's a lot of private sector interest in tracking down uh, the value chains and finding out about the carbon, the carbon content. There is big financial sector interest. There's the carbon disclosure uh, project. Uh, many of the biggest uh, European companies are signing up to that, not because uh, of carbon leakage, but because uh, uh, they, they face an interest in, in, by, by investors across the world and so on. So I think there, and then we have technological possibilities uh, that we as economists uh, as, you know, already you know, are just starting to discover the blockchain, no? the blockchain as a mechanism mechanism that could, you know, um, contain information and, and, and make it secure so that we cannot, along the value-added chain, um, falsify entries and so on. So I think, I think in the year that we still have, or maybe we have more than a year, you know, let's, let's, you know, be a little bit ambitious and, and get some, you know, uh, think about a system that um, is innovative and uh, goes as far in, uh, as possible in getting incentives right. I think this is uh, very important. What I hear from the lawyer, I'm not a lawyer, but I, of course we have conversations with lawyers, is that indeed if we do it right, it is probably 
uh, WTO consistent. We just you know have to be careful, uh, but it's feasible. And um, uh, the, the 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 idea of extending the ETS to imports has also EU law advantages. I see them. No, uh, and that's again that the thing that I would favor if we can do that. You know, then the Obercum tax system would be the third best. Uh, still better than doing nothing. Um, um, Herr, Herr von Unger, uh, the, um, how to give industry certainty about the costs they're facing. No? Um, I think the carbon, the, the, the carbon trade or indirect carbon trade, exports or imports, is, is only a small part of the cost uncertainty that they face. I mean, the, the problem, I think, of, of many uh, CO2-intensive uh, firms is uh, about the carbon price in Europe. Will it be high? Will it be low? Um, a lot of industries don't believe that the carbon price will be, will be high. If you look at the stock market evaluations of Total, uh, for example, you know, the, the, the obviously investors think that carbon prices will remain low, right? Uh, so uh, I think it, is, it will be important for policymakers in Europe to be credible and to put a price path out there. Maybe, you know, the ideas, uh, Jean-Claude Trichet has been talking or has, I think, I had a conversation with him where I liked the idea of having a, some sort of a, uh, of a carbon central bank that uh, makes sure, like inflation targets the price level, the central bank makes sure that we implement a price path so that, that uh, uh, industry can, can plan. I think I uh, talked already about Nicholas, Nicholas uh, point a little bit, and um, uh, compensation, that was your, your uh, point, H how to incentivize the owners of, uh, of fossil fuels to keep the stuff in the, in the ground. Well, yes, uh, compensation would be, uh, you know, we could simply bribe them, no? and say, uh, okay, uh, sell, us our, sell us your gas field or your coal mine. No, we buy the coal mine and uh, and we put it out of order. No, that's something we could do. It's maybe cheaper than than doing uh, some of the policies that, for example, Germany is now engaged in uh, uh, in, in the in the climate package. Uh, there are other ways of dealing with the the, the owners of fossil fuels. Uh, you know, when you extract coal and you sell it uh, to the world markets, you receive dollars or euros. What do you do with that? You invest it in the United States stock market or in Europe or something. And uh, we could, with uh, source taxation of uh, the dividends, you know, we could make those investments uh, non-attractive because what the fossil fuels, fuel owners do is they ask themselves what's better, extract the stuff or let it in the ground. If they extract it, you know, they would invest it and we could tax the investment proceeds. No? So there are many things we could do to, 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 keep, to help them or to convince them to keep the stuff in the ground maybe a little bit longer. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe on the um, uh, on this question of that there are production processes that are quite different for the same product. I mean, we have and in um, in carbon intensive product, it's massive. I mean, we can produce steel essentially now with the with the first pilot projects with mm -hmm. almost without emitting CO2, and we can uh, uh, can produce steel in uh, in old open ovens with, with huge amounts of CO2 production, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of possibilities in between. And uh, the same for electricity, where you get a completely homogeneous product. So you get exactly the same uh, product, uh, kilowatt hours, and you're, it's either coming from a wind turbine or from a lignite uh, firepower plant. Mm -hmm. And I see it extremely difficult to to kind of track that uh, track that down through the through the value chain um, to to see 
where something comes from. It's a lot of discretionary decisions. Do we take the, uh, the average emission factor of the electricity system of China? Do we take the wind turbine that belongs to the, uh, 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 to the steel manufacturer that is exactly appropriate for his export of steel? Or do we take the marginal unit in China, which always is a coal-fired power plant, which they uh, kind of have to switch on in order to run the, uh, uh, run the steam? And there's, I mean, these, are que these questions will have to be uh, will have to be settled, mm -hmm. and the the second point then is, I would see significant windfall uh, profits. I mean, you have some countries that uh, that have by uh, by historic co uh, coincidence because they have a lot of hydropower in their uh, in their country or because they have uh, historically a, a lot of nuclear. They are able to uh, to produce low carbon things, and that will then be uh, uh, that will then benefit. But is it that in the, in the bigger picture, where Europe is only 10% of the consumption, will we make a marginal, benefit, uh, a marginal uh, kind of addition by giving this incentive? Or will essentially all this just fall as windfall profits on, on some of the producers? So we see trade deviations within the system, but, mar uh, but marginally nothing happens because there's no additional incentive to build something, uh, to do something, to do something green. Um, on, the, on the free allowances question, um, I would argue, uh, I mean, you, you argue that WTO uh, is essentially, uh, has never challenged them. Well, maybe maybe they, they, they might, because free allowances are, in my view, uh, uh, not so clear. I mean, we have had free allowances uh, handed out in Europe massively in a time of overproduction or overcapacities in, uh, in many sectors, and they help to, to keep these industries in Europe despite global overcapacities. So there is a, uh, is a competitive element here. And um, if, you, uh, uh, um, if you argue that uh, WTO does not allow to, uh, to differentiate by the origin, which, uh, which is clear, obviously it makes it much more difficult to design an, uh, a policy that targets those countries on which we have leverage, say Ukraine, Morocco, and not target those countries which we fear, like the US, in a way. Um, on, the, uh, on, the, on the BDI question, um, I, I take example from the from the from the renewables uh, uh, policy. Even so, as I said, it has not been perfectly well designed. But as soon as we had a European policy on that, then DGComp had to accept that there are European targets and member states are allowed to to conduct policies in this area. And then state aid wasn't such a big of a uh, of an issue. And WTO has contested some of the feed and tariff systems, but mainly for local content provision issues and things like that. Uh, but you can seemingly design uh, feed and tariff systems or equivalents that are better designed uh, in, a, in a way that is compliant with, uh, with state aid rules. Um, yeah, I'll keep it at that. Thanks. Um, is there any other question, any other comments? No. Okay, so I think we can uh, we can close the uh, the discussion. I think it's been a, a very rich uh, discussion. I don't know whether it has been a conclusive uh, discussion, but there's no need to be conclusive. Not yet. Uh, at this uh, at this time, as I said, it's uh, it's a start of a, of a, of a process. Uh, it's clear that there are lots of uh, different facets, both uh, domestically and internationally, and uh, I think that's why it's indeed important that uh, the Commission does a good job at consulting all the uh, 
all mm -hmm. the relevant parties, both uh, within within our borders, within the EU and, and outside. Um, so it's clear that no country so far has, uh, has implemented, uh, at least at, uh, at the national level, mm. has implemented such a system. Uh, so uh, California has one. No? That's right. No, that's I said no country. Yes. So th there are indeed there are. Uh, so California. There's a little bit in in Canada as well. Mm -hmm. So within certain federations, mm -hmm. uh, there's been, but it cannot be compared mm -hmm. uh, at all. Uh, so, but no country. So at the federal level, mm -hmm. uh, no country has done it. Uh, there are more and more countries, and you, 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 you talked about the U.S., you talked about China, and indeed the China that does have sometimes at the, at, the, at the city level, sometimes at the uh, regional level, mm -hmm. uh, does have uh, carbon pricing. Mm -hmm. um, in principle, there will be this year, 2020, a, a national framework. Uh, there is no also in, in Canada mm -hmm. uh, a national or federal framework, although there are some legal uh, issues, in particular with Alberta, uh, <laughs> Alberta, which well. is the uh, mm -hmm. the intensive, the energy intensive uh, state, mm -hmm. um, is not liking some of uh, of those issues, understandably. So there there are issues, but things are moving. But it it is a fact that so far. Uh, we don't have the experience of a country, either small or large, uh, that has accompanied its uh, domestic carbon pricing with a uh, adjustment, mm. uh, an adjustment mechanism. So um, I, I suppose that means that you know, even though everybody knows that there is an issue, there are pros and cons, and uh, so we shall see what the uh, what the EU will decide. Uh, we are not in the same world that we were before. I mean, lots of things have, have changed. But I think it will be uh, a question that will remain alive and important uh, in the uh, in the coming months. So um, I think all of us will continue to contribute to, to this debate. And I'm, uh, I'm very <coughs> grateful to, to both of you. Uh, thank you, Georg, for your interesting presentation and your paper. And Gabriel, thank you also for uh, all you brought to the discussion. Uh, thank, thank you, Andre. Thank you. <laughs>